This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. For Steve Jorgensen, this is J. Douglas Barker. And today, we'll be visiting with authors Paula Tarver and Jeannie Martin to discuss their book, Advance My Baby, here on Author Talk. Welcome. Good morning, Paula, and I'm doing great. I'm Jeannie, and I'm doing great also. Thank you. Excellent. Happy to visit with you today. The cover of your book asks this important question. Do you want your baby to reach their greatest potential? Advance My Baby is a self-help manual for parents that will empower them with knowledge and skill to raise beautiful, healthy babies no matter what their socioeconomic standing. Now, that's a bold statement. Now, what was the motivation for writing your book? Well, Jeannie and I are uh, pediatric occupational therapists, and we our current full-time job is with the Florida Elks Children's Therapy Services, and we've been working for them for the past 14 years. It's a free nonprofit organization when a child has been identified with a developmental delay and they don't have easy access to therapy, then we pick the child up and we go to the homes and we teach and train the parents on how to catch them up developmentally. And we have found that when we brought the parents in and made them a part of the solution instead of part of the problem and educated them on basic development and sensory integration, the kids would would uh, progress so much quicker. In fact, what normally takes two to three years in the clinic without parents' involvement, we can get done in six months. Amazing. Over the years, we found, as we would talk, we would be like 80% of our basic job is just educating parents on basic development. And then Jeannie found some studies that verify that the average parent doesn't know basic development. And if you don't know basic development, you can't identify delays. And we'd be going in the homes, and we'd have to tell the parents that their child was two to three years delayed in a lot of circumstances where the child was, you know, three, four, five years of age. Yes. And so we decided that we needed to find a resource for parents. Did our homework, and we looked, and there's lots of baby books out there but the majority of them are written by pediatricians, nurses, and psychologists, and they focus more on just medical, the medical model of how to care for your child. And when you would open them up to, like, the development, it'd be one page, and it would be very, very, very basic. And so, you know, as most people in the field know, it's very comprehensive, and there are thousands of milestones. So what we decided to do was to get the best of the best of what we look for when we evaluate children and what type of milestones we focus on that we think are the most important to help a child, you know, reach their full potential. And then we developed Advance My Baby. It took us four years working part-time on it, but it's definitely a labor of love, and it's our mission to get the word out so that the average parent will have the skills and knowledge to track their baby's development and keep them on track. Now, did you find any common thread as far as developmental issues when you were dealing with the families? Do you want to cover that one, Jeannie? Yeah, well, in the current um, climate of uh, developmental trends uh, with children, we're finding uh, the CDC is reporting 1 in 50 children are on the autistic spectrum, uh, one in ten children are diagnosed with ADHD. One in six children have sensory processing issues. One in twenty have learning disorder. And premature births are on the rise. Uh, 62% premature births in the United States. That was reported by Mar- March of Dimes. And we really need to try to do something about this and try to help parents identify early on, uh, early detection. And early intervention is the key to identifying problems and help minimizing and even um, trying to eliminate some of the problems that could occur if you know what to look for, you know, from, from infancy. Yes. Now, ADHD seems to be a, a catchphrase or a, a trend that seems to be highly focused on. 
in education and in families, it never occurred to people a generation ago. You just said one in 10 children are on ADHD medication. On medication. And if the parents were to know the term sensory integration and understand that if they get in young from zero from birth to three years of age, we could minimize and completely eliminate ADHD as it is today. Because what it means when they are labeled ADHD is that they have underlying sensory processing disorder that's not being addressed. Mm -hmm. And medication just puts a Band-Aid on it. It doesn't actually address the underlying problem that's causing the child to be hyperactive and to um, not be able to uh, monitor and adjust their states of arousal, and it causes them to be very disorganized. Yes. What would you say is the basic approach to getting ADHD under control with a family? Parents need to start doing the activities in our manual, our handbook, right from the beginning. Because our goal is that every parent knows the term sensory integration and that it's the building blocks for all higher-level um, skills. In fact, you know, you probably want to ask me the next question, what is sensory integration? Well, it's the brain's ability to interpret, organize, and respond to the information it receives through our basic seven senses. And it enables us to um, practice functional behavior. It's basic to everything that we do. And um, there are like four levels to um, our sensory processing. And, you know, we're taught, everybody's taught in school that there's five basic senses, but there's really eight. Um, there's the sixth one is a muscle sense. And then the seventh one is that there's a movement or balance, um, our vestibular proprioceptive sense. And then there's an introspective sense, which is our ability to um, feel when we're sick or when we're hungry or when we have the urge to go to the bathroom. A lot of children that have sensory processing issues are very late to potty train. Um, a lot of them have feeding issues. They just don't feel hungry. And that's very common with ADHD kids. They have um, underlying auditory processing issues that go on. Whenever we pick up a child that um, has speech delays, if it's not a problem with, like they have a cleft palate or there's some kind of structural damage, um, an injury of some sort to the muscle in the mouth, then it's usually an auditory processing problem. Would you describe your book as a clinical approach or as a little more conversational and something a family could read? Yeah, it's more of an inter interactive. It <clears throat> definitely takes um, a therapeutic approach on uh, play on, on the activities uh, that we have there, but um, it's all spelled out. It's very easy to use. You know, you, you have great bonding with your child because, um, and can uh, follow along the uh, developmental milestones there. There's pictures in the book that show you um, some of the activities. Uh, and it's, it's very interactive, very easy to, to use. And it helps with the progression um, and advancement of your baby. It's written in all normal, the way we teach and train yeah. parents. So all you have to do is have a ninth grade education to be able to follow and understand the activities and exercises in the book. Very good. We, we really kept in mind the 16-year-old that may need to use our book or the socioeconomical type situations where they might only have a ninth grade education. We wanted to make sure that everyone would be able to utilize the book so that we could have access to this information, yes. Yeah, we wanted to be able to empower as many parents out there as possible. Wonderful. What one thing would you want readers to take away from your work? Well, you cannot take development for granted anymore. It's imperative, imperative, imperative that parents know basic development and track their child's milestones. Because with these these trends that I reported before, uh, it's just getting worse. And early detection and early intervention is the key to helping every child reach their full potential. Um, and our handbook is the best tool for tracking that development and detecting delay if it should arise. Parents can start working with their babies and begin tracking development from the day they bring them home. 
Yeah. And that is that is our goal and that's our, our, our vision and our mission is to really help stop these trends from developing. All right. And Lately. if you were introducing this book to someone that didn't know of your writing skills or your background, what would be your introduction? Well, that um, our manual is one of a kind and that it's going to empower parents with the knowledge and expertise um, needed to help them advance their babies to their full potential. Um, we also have a free online assessment that parents can access at any time on our website at www.advancemybaby.com. They just go to the assessment tab and they put their baby's name and date of birth in there and then the questions come up and they get a one-page printout that tells them exactly where their child's performing at in all six developmental areas. And then it tells them where, what pages to go to in the manual to start working so that they make sure that their child um, stays on track in all six areas. It's great for the baby books, too, because then the, the children can go back and look to see when they met their various milestones and that they were either behind in certain areas or that they were advanced. The, our, the best thing to do is for a new mom to get this when she's pregnant and then start, read through it and then start to do the activities as soon as she brings the baby home. And then she only has to do one chapter every three months, and it covers all six areas. Well, that sounds very complete. The book is, is good for three years. <laughs> three yeah, goes from birth to three years of age. Three years. That's right. Your chapters start at uh, birth and go through month 36, if I remember correctly. Yes, yeah. Each chapter is, is just split, um, like zero to three months, and then four, four to six months, you know, things like, uh, like that, uh, two to three, uh, three to four months uh, split. Very good. So about, yeah, three months that uh, you're working on one chapter. You know it very well. How is this book different from others in the marketplace? You did mention more of the clinical approach that doctors use. Is this different than others that are out there? Oh, yeah, there's nothing like it. Um, the OTs that are looking at it, which OTs are occupational therapists, they're all like, oh, we wish we would have wrote it. You know, they're like, this is so needed. There's nothing like it out there. It's basically OT handbook. Um, our best customers are actually professionals because they appreciate the material that's in there and they know how desperately needed this is for parents to be able to uh, have access to a resource like this. There is no resources out there like it on the market, so that's why Jeannie and I produced it for parents, especially for as young as uh, birth to three uh, years of age. Most of them are a little bit older. Well, and we also have a chapter on prematurity because, you know, yeah. prematurity, like Jeannie was saying earlier, it's up 62%, and parents go home from the hospital on how to care for the child but not how to promote the development. And so what usually happens is we pick them up about two years of age and they're functioning at six to nine months mm. because the parents didn't know what to do to help promote the development. So then we come in and we start to do sensory integration type activities and exercises with them. And within six months, we can generally get them caught up. And so it's like there's a year to two year waiting list at a lot of the hospitals and clinics. And if parents want to be able to be proactive, they can get on top of this and then they won't need to get on one of those waiting lists down the road. I see. What was the most challenging part of writing this book? Well, Jeannie and I live two and a half hours away from each other, and we have full-time jobs. We're both mothers and wives and, you know, <laughs> have a lot on our plate. So finding the time to work on it was the most challenging. But what was really interesting is when we did get together on the weekends, we got so much work done when we were together than when we tried to work on it separately. So we really believe that there's some kind of synergy between the two of us working together on the project. Fabulous. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you might think is important about your book? I, I would say that this this handbook is uh, to be proactive, and it, it does not take the place of regular um, occupational therapy or any kind of therapies like that, but it is to enhance any normal child's development to identify excuse me, any delays if they should occur and to be able to 
follow along and to see where your child is. Fun thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in like Jeannie and I, both of our daughters, because we knew what to do, our children were always advanced. And what parents can do is if they're doing these things and their child is advancing, they just read ahead and they can keep going on and knowing what to introduce to them and what kind of activities to do. So our goal is that all children can be advanced or at least reach their full potential. No matter. So it's, it was written for the average baby, but if there is a child with special needs, like a child with Down syndrome or cerebral palsy, something like that, they can utilize it to know what to do instead of just waiting for the therapist to tell them. They can get on top of it and be proactive, like Jeannie was just saying. An excellent idea. Are there any other books in your future, do you think? Yes, our next book is going to be from four to six years of age. We've been visiting with authors Paula Tarver and Jeannie Martin, discussing their book, Advance My Baby. Thank you so much for visiting with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting us. How can we obtain your book? Um, They can go on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, any of those websites. You can also access it on our website, advancemybaby.com. Good. This sounds like a must-read for anyone with a young family. For grandparents, too. Yeah, uh, you were mentioning about having a baby. If you knew anyone have a baby, it would be uh, probably one of the best... um, Shower gifts Baby a mom could have with all the information ahead of time, like Paula was discussing earlier. Thank you for writing and sharing this important, vital information. For Author House, Steve Jorgensen, and Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Tugginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. For Steve Jorgensen, this is Jay Douglas Barker, and today on Author Talk, we'll be visiting with John Hunt to discuss his book and his story, Walking with Jason. Welcome, John. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to visit with you by phone. In the foreword of your book, These lines jumped off the page and basically recount the story of your book. When an untimely death takes a young person, its aftermath is often a series of extended and entangled tragedies. Such a loss can leave in its wake significantly diminished living among those loved ones remaining. These realities bear witness that a grief of that magnitude is never gotten over. It survived. Why did you come to write this book? What was your motivation behind it? Actually, I had a 
had some had multiple motivations. The first was after Jason's death, we started a foundation called the Jason William Hunt Foundation, which was to carry on basically his legacy and in his memory of his work with uh, troubled kids that were uh, using expeditions in the woods to help them learn to believe in themselves again. And we found that um, we needed a, a more dependable method of raising uh, money. The last couple of years, uh, a lot of our donors kind of had some financial problems, and we were kind of low on getting low on cash. And we, we had done some charity events and fun, you know, 5Ks and car shows and things like that. But we were looking for something a little bit more of an ongoing basis that could generate cash. And the idea came to me that um, maybe a telling of Jason's attempts to be a, an effective outdoor educator, working with these kids who have very troubled lives and come from very different settings, uh, would be a way to um, talk about the industry itself, the, the outdoor education, the outdoor experience as a way of helping people and would be a way of maybe motivating some kids like Jason was in high school and college to who loved the outdoors, but um, we're looking for ways to stay outdoors, and this became a way. This became a job and a life process of, uh, of uh, working with people in the outdoors and being able to do the things he loved, the climbing, the hiking, the canoeing, all the different outdoor activities, and he could stay outdoors because he was, he was working with kids in the outdoors. And so it, it became um, kind of a mission of mine to write the book and, and um, reveal the outdoor experience. Please give us a little more of the history of Jason and his background, his interest. I understand you also have an interest in the outdoors and love it, as he did. Yeah, we, I've had some experiences. I've been uh, not as deep as probably Jason got into with the rock climbing. I'm <laughs> not one to rock climb. But we've we've obviously camped and hiked and we've canoed and we've kayaked and um, do some stand-up paddle boarding and over the years bicycle riding. So there's been a lot of different activities. I was on National Ski Patrol for a long time and uh, really enjoyed things that uh, kept us outdoors. So I think when Jason came along, it was just another part of the process that we'd been in. Um, we'd been outdoor family to begin with, so he was in a way, uh, trying to find his niche, and he ran into a good buddy of his in high school that was into rock climbing, and they started together rock climbing, and that was, uh, Jason found that was his love. Mm. So then the challenge became, okay, how do we, how do we uh, continue this love of rock climbing and at the same time have a life? And so we Instead of a job, I think it became more of a calling, more of a, as I call it in a book, uh, a ministry of the outdoors where he was working with kids, uh, helping them. This activity is called therapeutic wilderness training. Would that be the best way to describe this? Yes, I call it therapeutic wilderness because the very, the very essence of these groups is going out and they're challenging kids in the sense that the kids have to carry heavy packs, they, which are... They think they may be 50 or 60 pounds, or probably more like about 35. But after hiking for several hours, climbing up and down mountains, they feel the packs get really heavy. So the kids are challenged all through this. They learn new skills. They learn how to set up the tent properly so it's not the water's not running down and they have to move their sleeping bag every couple of minutes. And they learn how to cook, and they learn really how to fend for themselves in, in, in the outdoors. And these are experiences that they probably never even realized were available to them, and they probably never realized that they could they could handle and be good at. And so um, this whole process, being outdoors, the outdoors is really challenging. Mother Nature, is, uh, there's an old joke about you don't mess with Mother Nature, and it's true. Mother Nature is not very forgiving. It has its own set of circumstances, and if you cross the line with Mother Nature, uh, you're going to learn real fast. The consequences come back real sharp. And so a kid who's challenging the system learns real well, real quick, rather, that he can't buck the system with Mother Nature. He's got to toe the line. He's got to learn all of a sudden a whole new way to act. And 
What's really great about it is he does it in an environment that's controlled and guided by these by these educators, these wilderness educators, who really are there more as guides and guard and guardians for the kids. They make sure the kids are protected, they make sure the kids are safe, but they also make sure that the total environment is still challenging for them. They're still keeping them moving, keeping them um, focused, or trying to get them focused on where they need to be. Now, as as a wilderness educator, where was he based? Well, Jason, um, he was a nomad. Um, many in that, he, he, I guess you could say he was based in Cincinnati where we live. But uh, as a wilderness educator, there's, there's a lot of jobs that are just seasonal. And mm-hmm. so you see these people hopping from one location. Uh, Jason worked in Montana for a while. Then he was out in um, uh, North Carolina. Then he went to, uh, he had a job set up to go to Maine just before his uh, just before he died so he was they they kind of like have truck will travel type of system in order to stay outdoors now there are some systems where they're year-round and they can um, stay with that job and with that uh, program and they alternate the kids go out for a 40 or 60 day expedition and the staff will change out every few days. So people get to go home again. Mm. Whereas the nomads tend to be in programs that work. You're there for 60 or 90 or 20 days and you're on that expedition from the beginning to the end. So there's several different ways they do it, but uh, it's kind of interesting because they carry an awful lot of their life back in there in the back of their pickup truck or their SUV. You've written almost 300 pages describing Jason's life. Who do you think this book will appeal to? Well, that's an interesting question because a lot of the people that have read it so far have uh, have found their own individual purposes or uh, value behind it, and it's kind of amazing. But obviously, I, I, I think my first approach was to talk to uh, young the college, the high schoolers, the college kids coming up saying, hey, here's a grand opportunity to help other people. And if you love the outdoors or think about the outdoors, so that was one of the alternatives. I think uh, social workers, psychologists, people that work with kids, uh, this is a great tool for them to understand the value of the outdoors. I think parents um, that maybe have a child in in trouble or uh, could use this book as a as a um, alternative to what they could do to help their child. Um, I see psychologists or social workers maybe handing this copy or referring parents to this book as a way to um, have them, the parents, understand maybe a program that the social worker might be uh, presenting to them. And then I think there's probably people out there who would value a book that talks about the loss of a, of, of a, of a child and how we as a family came together and how we moved on from that. Uh, there's a part in the book I talk about where I read two, when when Jason died, people uh, gave us different books to read, and there were two books specifically that I read. Uh, one was by a Yale Divinity uh, professor, and the other was by um, actually a previous Surgeon General of the United States, and both of them had lost sons, and both of them um, didn't have the chance to uh, be with their son at the time of the death. Uh, mm. We were with Jason for about nine days as he was in a coma after his fall. Um, why we were picked to be there for nine days when these other two individuals who are very um, very experienced, I would say, in, in talking about death or working with people who have died, um, didn't have that opportunity. I don't know. But out of all of that, we started the foundation and we moved on trying to extend that help to other people. Now, if you're introducing this to someone that didn't know Jason's story, how would you describe this book? It's a father's recounting of his son's attempt to be an effective wilderness educator, working with kids at risk, troubled kids, in the woods on expeditions. And in that process, the kids learn to believe in themselves. And that action is discussed in the book by not only Jason's words, but interviews that I had with other outdoor outdoor educators, 
uh, with administrators and actually with the students. There are some students that gave me the time to talk about their experience and what it meant to them. So it's a, I think that's the best way I would recount the book. It's a story of tragedy, but it sounds like there's an underpinning of inspiration also in your book. Oh, I think so very much. Um, it's kind of interesting because when I started to write the book, I wasn't, I, I wrote it and then as people read it and people edited it, they would say, oh, this is a father's recounting of his lost, of his lost son. And I thought I was past that, <laughs> I guess, yes. too naively, but I thought after uh, Jason died in 01, so I guess I thought in 12 years I'd probably work beyond that, and now it was just time to kind of promote outdoor experiential education. And in reality, the more I wrote the book and the more people talked to me about the book, I realized, yeah, I'm still out there. It never really goes away. It may... Um, recede a little bit, or the idea of the loss may... You learn to live with it, and you learn to go on. John, what was the most challenging part of writing Jason's story? I'm sure recounting his life and doing the interviews must have been difficult, but were there other challenges that you didn't anticipate? Yes, you're right. The Just the whole idea of trying to talk about Jason and, and the actual fall and that whole nine-day experience is, is still very emotional. The other challenging part of the book for me was in writing the book about Jason, I didn't want to be a maudlin father who just loved his son and was in praise of everything he did because I just felt in today's society you you get an awful lot of that from parents who are talking about their child who just was a mass murderer or did some horrendous act and the media is all over them as a and you get this feeling. I, I just felt that as a parent, I would lose a sense of um, uh, value in the words I was saying. So what saved me, and I think what really makes the book, is at the time of Jason's death and during some of my travels, people recounted their experiences about Jason. And so I was able to draw from their experiences of Jason, and then sometimes they were... As a parent, you don't see the forest from the trees, so they were looking at them with different eyes. And I was able to pull together throughout the book their instances of Jason that I think relate to what I was talking about in the book, or at least I hope it does. Yes. But it, it showed Jason as, I think you could actually say he was like the model of an outdoor educator struggling to be good. Mm. So that, I think, add more weight to the book and they were more independent eyes than my own. On a personal note, John, thank you for taking time to write this book. I'm sure it was a great challenge for you. But I, on the other hand, know that readers who read the story of Walking with Jason will be inspired to perhaps live their life to its fullest. Oh, I certainly hope, and I appreciate those words. We've been visiting with John Hunt, author of Walking with Jason. John, where can we obtain your book? Well, the, the book is available... Uh, through the foundation, which is the Jason William Hunt Foundation. That's www.jwhf.org. And if you go to the website and follow the uh, the book cover track, takes you to either buying it through the foundation, and actually we do accept donations, so you could make a donation, and we have a program there for donations. And then also on the website we have alternate sources, like Author House, my publisher, has a, a bookstore, and then there's Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And I am beginning to list uh, locally stores uh, across the country that are carrying the book. So that uh, if you go to our website, Jason William Hunt Foundation website, uh, there's a lot of information as to where you can get the book. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing your inspiring story. For Steve Jorgensen and Author House, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search. 
physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one's spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday night at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, TrishaGoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. For Steve Jorgensen, this is J. Douglas Barker. And today on Author Talk, we'll be visiting with author Kathy Rodkey to discuss her book, The Customer Isn't Always Right, a provocative title and an author house publication. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Happy to visit with you by phone today. Your book cover says this, Retail employees are definitely not given the respect they deserve, nor do they feel as good about themselves and their profession as they should. There are many reasons for this, all of which are explored in The Customer Isn't Always Right, nor do they feel as good about themselves and their profession as they should. There are many reasons for this, all of which are explored in The Customer Isn't Always Right. That is an interesting approach to retail. Most of the time, the phrase is, the customer is always right. How did you come to write this book? I retired from the University of Maryland watched my grand- after 30 years, watched my grandchildren for seven years, wrote a book about that for grandparents who were raising their grandchildren. And then I decided after they went to school to try to find something else I enjoyed. So I went into retail. I worked at the bottom level. Uh, in the ladies' department, and uh, was very content, but I did not like the way the customers treated the employees. When you say the bottom level, were you working in uh, undergarments, foundations? No. (laughs) Well, actually, yes, I was. Part of my job was uh, the... uh, underwear department in the ladies department. See, I'm, in, I'm intuitive and a <laughs> psychic. I wish I, I wish I had had you when I was writing the book. We could have uh, gotten even more humor into it. <laughs> uh, the bottom level is when you're a floor associate and you're strictly, you know, cleaning up the department and the fitting rooms. Was this a major so I store? I love that. I love being organized. Store. It was a major department store that went bankrupt, just as I predicted it would. Was that not because Because of your association, I'm sure? Oh, no, no, no. Um, As a matter of fact, I think I might have kept them in in business a little longer, to be honest with you. (laughs) It was because of their need to make sure the customer was always right. (laughs) Okay. And that can be a big problem. Corporate headquarters demands that no matter what the customer does, you have to take it. It's the bottom line. Is that a bad idea? I, From reading little excerpts from your book, I wouldn't want to be in retail if I had to clean up after some of the antics of some of the customers. Right. Absolutely, and that is the biggest problem because in order to keep their jobs, the employees do have to tolerate all kinds of abuse. And actually, in the eight years I was in retail, it kept getting worse and worse. Hmm. There's a psychology behind shopping. A lot of people go shopping because 
they have issues, big issues. And part of that is control. So they know when they go into a store, they can behave in a certain way that they might not behave anyplace else and get away with it. Very interesting observation. Now, how did you come to write this book? What motivated you? Well, actually, I did it for my fellow retail employees. They need to know that it's a respected profession, that they work hard, that they don't deserve the kind of treatment they get from not only the customers, but their other, their other retail employees, their managers, and corporate. I worked harder in retail, both physically and psychologically, than I did working for the university for 30 years and watching my grandchildren for seven years. And it was so abusive that I decided to make it humorous. Are there any instances that you can recount that are tasteful that uh, might be a shock to our listeners? Oh, my goodness. Uh, how about pulling a couple out of the fitting room and going in and finding uh, used condoms in the middle of uh, bikini bathing suits? <laughs> that sounds like too much fun in the wrong place. <laughs> we, we thought of putting a room for rent sign on one of the fitting uh, room doors. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> and nowadays, uh, a lot of the stores allow couples to go into fitting rooms together. Hadn't thought of that. But in our store, uh, the, the corporate wanted them separated. It's no wonder they went out of business. So it was up to us to ply them apart. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And, uh, well, of course, the, the deliberate, uh, you know, defecations and urinations in, in fitting rooms. Well, those are things that you don't and want to read while you're eating lunch. To wipe it up. Yeah, you don't want to read those stories while you're eating lunch. Uh, anything exactly. That, anything that you... Hopefully no one's eating lunch right now. <laughs> absolutely. And is there something that really stands out as a very, very humorous event that occurred while you were in retail? Oh, my goodness. What's the funniest thing so you've seen? Of them. Okay. Well, I always love the, the parents who bring their children in, their young children in, and they're trying to either return something or shoplift. We got the young father who came to the register, and uh, he had a party bag, and the cashier went to ring it, and, of course, she felt merchandise in the bag. So she took out a Barbie doll and some dresses and things, and um, he said, oh, my goodness, I didn't know that was in there. And the little girl, his little girl, piped up and said, but, Daddy, I told you the Barbie doll didn't come with the bag. Absolutely. <laughs> or you get the man who's returning shoes to the return desk, and he has his little son with him, and the shoes are obviously worn. But he really didn't have to lie about it because the store would have taken them back anyway. Mm -hmm. But he had to say that he um, put them on, walked a little bit around his apartment, and they, were, and they were too tight and they didn't fit. And little Johnny pipes up and says, But Daddy, you wore them to Aunt Carol's wedding all day Saturday. <laughs> From the mouth of babes. These are my favorite. Now, your book certainly would appeal to people in retail, but what about others? Do you think they would find it of interest? Well, um, actually, I've gotten some interest from corporations. As a matter of fact, I've written some articles for them in how to improve their relationship with their employees and how far they need to go to protect their employees from customers without uh, alienating the customer. And there are ways to do that. There are customers that, that retail do, don't need to cater to because all they're doing is abusing uh, their, their uh, shopping rights. They are, they are bringing back stuff that they wear. The, these are, the, they are shoplifting. These are, the, these are the kind of people that will bring a company into bankruptcy. And as the economy gets worse, People do more of that stuff because they can't afford it. So the companies have to beef up their security, which is another issue that is just off the chart hysterical. You can see where retail, retailers nowadays who are fighting for the box 
who are trying to survive in this new global technology, online shopping, are very, very concerned about both the customers and the employees. Are you open for consulting work, or are you doing any at the moment? Well, I've done none. I've done none for money, so I I can't consider myself, you know, a consultant, and I'm not worried about money, believe it or not. But but I'll, I do I'll send you my address and my these... bank account number. <laughs> I still <laughs> I still do work over the internet uh, for people blogging, uh, and like I say, I've done three or four articles for for human resources a magazine for retailers, giving them ideas on on what they need to do. Describe the process of writing your book. How long did it take to complete this? Well, you know, I worked in retail for eight years, so it took me eight years. Eight years. <laughs> because I started collecting data, and, and I did all of the, the cartoons, you know, my little stick figures. Mm -hmm. I was going to hire someone, but it gets into all kinds of complications, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it myself and do the little stick figures. I thought they were kind but of charming. It wasn't really about. It wasn't really about being a upscale book. It was more about getting it out so my my retailer constituents could read it and feel like, okay, I'm not the only one in this. I'm not the only one this is happening to, and I can really make a career out of this if I look the other way on certain things and take a humorous approach. There are other books in the marketplace. How is yours different? What sets it apart besides all of your gee whiz cutesy drawings? First scene, like I say, it, 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 it's the worst possible thing in retail is to say the customer isn't always right. The whole basis of retail is the customer is always right, but it's not going to work anymore, not in this present culture. Going to take advantage, and they are, and they will bring a company down. The most challenging thing about writing this, this account, uh, what was that? Actually, honestly, deciding when to get it out, when to quit, hmm. because you realize I could not be working for a store and put this book out. I would be sued. Now, the first store went bankrupt. The second store is a major, major, major retailer, and I would be in trouble. So my father got ill. I went to uh, take care of him for three months until he passed. And when I came back, I went in for another week, and I things were out of control totally. And I said, that's it. I'm done. Didn't, didn't need it. It was just something to pass the time for me, and I was out the door, and then my decision was made as to this is the time. The people in the store that I worked with, which is just one store in a thousand or more stores across the country, are, are just delighted to have read this. In every way, shape, or form, they say that it has made their lives better. And that's what all my books have been about. And you've written how so many? Eight years for that one, but I spent 30 years on, on Free to Be Insane, which is about my mother and bipolar disorder. It's used, uh, by, that's used by psychotherapists and uh, psychologists to uh, counsel young children. I read a little bit of that history. That was a, a traumatic event that happened in your life. It was the most. It's the first um, uh, event of my life at six years old. Prior to that, I don't remember a thing. But watching my mothers kill my two brothers was the uh, defining event in my life. Of course, back in the 50s, there was no child psychologist. I was told to keep my mouth shut. Uh, children are seen but not heard. They don't have any opinions. So until I was 21 years old and met a psychologist at the University of Maryland who told me to write it all down, I suffered from the guilt of thinking I could possibly have saved my, my brothers from this woman who took uh, eight firemen to calm her down, to, to control her. And how many other books have you written? Just the one Just book? Just the three. Just the three. Just the three. The Grandparents' Guide, which is used by Frederick County uh, in our seminars for... Um, grandmothers specifically, who are ra raising their grandchildren. And that came about because um, we were doing seminars, 
and I was relating to them all the funny things my grandchildren said. And they said, please put that in a book along with helpful hints with how to be a good grandparent, um, either if you're raising your children or if you're just babysitting. And that's how that came about. Then Free to Be Insane was a ma in manuscript form. And then Johns Hopkins asked uh, the psychologist at the university if that could be put in book form to make it more interesting. So that's how that came about. And that took 30 years because that didn't get published till just recently as a book. Customer isn't always right is being used to help retail employees. You've outgrown some very difficult things in your past and have developed a wonderful sense of humor. Great way to bring healing to the soul. This book, The Customer Isn't Always Right, sounds like a terrific read. We've been visiting with Kathy Rodkey, the author. And I want to thank you, Kathy, for visiting with us today. How can we get your book? You are very, very welcome. Um, I have a website. Oh, oh, you can go directly to Author House. Uh, it's sold on Amazon.com. And they can even, I would even give them my, um, my website and they can ask for it there. But it's, it's doing very well uh, considering the fact that I don't do much uh, merchandising or advertising of the book. So two retirements and I'm, I'm not in it for the money just to help people. Thank you so much. The correct spelling of Kathy's name is K-A-T-H-I-E, last name R-O-D. K-E-Y. The name of the book again is The Customer Isn't Always Right. Thank you for sharing this with us today, Kathy. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. For Steve Jorgensen, Author Talk and Author House Publications, this is J. Douglas Barker.